Hello and welcome to another episode of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. After a brief hiatus, we're back with a leaner, meaner format. From now on, we'll be bringing you half-hour shows every week, so you can get your science podcast fix in a more regular, digestible size. I'm Sylvia Leatham, and with me in studio today are Lenny Antonelli, Marie Boren, and Arlene O'Neill. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, on Twitter under at cybernia, on facebook.com forward slash cybernia, or you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. On the show today, we'll be talking about whether ageing might one day become optional, and we'll be discussing the science of botany in our culture corner. We'll also have our usual events roundup. Dr. Aubrey de Grey claims that ageing is a problem that can be cured and he believes there's a good chance that we'll be able to extend human life to 1,000 years within the coming decades. He is the Chief Science Officer of the SENS Foundation, a non-profit organisation that researches and promotes rejuvenation therapies and regenerative medicine. Aubrey de Grey made an appearance at the Science Gallery in Dublin recently and I spoke to him after his talk. So, uh, Aubrey de Grey, you have an unconventional view of ageing. Could you sum up in a nutshell for our listeners what that is? I don't think I do have an unconventional view of ageing at all, actually. I think I have a perfectly normal view of ageing, namely, I'm fairly aware that ageing is bad for you. The only thing that is unconventional about my view of ageing is my expert opinion as to the prospects for our ability to develop medicine in the foreseeable future that can seriously combat it. I think most people take the view that ageing is some sort of mysterious, mythical thing that will never be under human control in the same way that we can't invent perpetual motion machines. Um, But that's complete nonsense. And to me, it's always been pretty damned obvious that it's complete nonsense. Uh, The only real difference is that over the past decade or more, I've actually been able to come up with a, a, if you might call it a grand plan, um, a panel of positive interventions, which I think in all cases are likely to be developable within the next decade or three, um, and which should, between them, be able to combat ageing really comprehensively. So these are actual real interventions, real therapies that you're talking about. This isn't just uh, an idea of to open up a debate about ageing you're actually talking about. Absolutely. The only reason that one can put any kind of time frame on the development of these therapies is by having a lot of detail in place already with respect to actually what those therapies would consist of and therefore what additional work we need to do starting from where we are today in terms of technology and um, well, the, the, the biomedical research. And can you describe some of those therapies just uh, briefly? So one thing that we're going to need to do is to introduce new enzymes into into our cells that are able to break down certain chemicals that the cell creates and does not dispose of, just sequesters and eventually gets overcome by the accumulation of. Um, These enzymes can be found in the soil, typically, in bacteria, and we have various approaches to actually introducing them into our own bodies, uh, which, of course, remain to be developed yet. We haven't done that yet. Um, so far, it's a case of characterizing, identifying these enzymes, first of all, modifying them so that they work well inside mammalian cells, inside human cells, even though they were not originally evolved in human cells, um, and you know, a, a bunch of other technical details. But that's the sort of thing. And how would those therapies then actually be administered? What would your, your vision for that be? Most of, mostly, I would expect that these therapies will be administered straightforwardly by injection because that's already the way that we administer 
most of the therapies that of, this, of this type. If we take stem cell therapies, for example, which is certainly a big example, a big, a big subset of what we're going to have to do, most stem cell therapies consist of simply injecting the relevant type of cell into the circulation and it just goes to the right place and does its thing. The same would be true in many cases for these enzymes I just mentioned because typically we might want to introduce these things using gene therapy and that would involve injecting engineered DNA into the circulation which again by virtue of having evolved to know how to do this just goes into the right cells and integrates and starts to um, do its job. So yes, mostly injections. There may be some surgery involved because if we create, for example, whole new organs, artificial organs using tissue engineering, that will obviously need to be introduced by a transplant. Um, there may also be very much more traditional um, um, technologies such as pharmaceuticals and vaccines, and some of these things may be administered orally. And would you um, just, how would it actually work then? Would, say, somebody who's 60 years old get an injection and then the next day like, wake up feeling like a 30-year-old? Or? Um, uh, well, first of all, let's be clear, the, the details of how these therapies will work is going to change over time. The first-generation therapies, like any first-generation technology, is probably going to be quite clunky in one way or another, and so I wouldn't be at all surprised if it involves a hospital stay of a couple of weeks or more um, in, in the first instance. But yes, I would certainly imagine over time, as the therapies become more and more refined, that they will become more and more convenient as well, and so one would just take an injection. In terms of how rapidly the therapies work, I think it would be much more likely that the therapies would exert their effects over a period of months or more. Uh, but certainly the rejuvenation would be faster than the initial ageing process was. Okay. And uh, when might we actually see these therapies become a reality? So I think that we've got a 50-50 chance of developing these therapies within about the next 25 years, so long as the early stage research that's going on now and will be going on over the next decade uh, is sufficiently well-funded that it goes as fast as it could. And that's a big if. Um, but, yeah, 25 years, I think we've got a 50-50 chance. However, I do want to emphasise that that's a very speculative prediction, same as any prediction of that sort of time frame in any technology is. And therefore, I think there's certainly a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years if we just happen to hit a lot of obstacles that we haven't yet identified. And uh, I know you, with your Sense Foundation, are working on developing these kind of techniques. And are other people around the world also working on this? Sure. So some of these areas of biomedical research are already well understood, not necessarily only in respect of ageing, but in respect of other conditions, and are being very well-funded and well-researched all over the world. So the whole of stem cell therapy, more or less, is relevant to all of this. That's the biggest example. Uh, the elimination of molecular garbage that accumulates outside cells and the spaces between cells is something that is important in Alzheimer's disease. And in that particular case, it's being pursued very extensively in what's now a phase three clinical trial, which is, of course, an extremely wide-ranging, um, wide worldwide phenomenon. Um, there are quite a few components of all of this, however, that are still very neglected, very poorly appreciated for how important they are and where we are very much... Um, taking the lead and that's really where we view our uh, role our mission is to be the hub of all of this and to make sure that no essential component is left neglected I see um, obviously the idea of people living for hundreds of years raises a lot of challenges and uh, the, the most important one that I can think of would be that we would end up with a population explosion and how would our planet cope with, with that? Okay, so I think it, so it's, it's rather frustrating to me that people are so willing to fixate on the consequences of 
the defeat of ageing in terms of longevity and to forget about the fact that we actually, hello, we have a problem today of people getting sick and, you know, badly sick and dying in very large numbers, which um, if they haven't lived as long as most people do these days, we consider it to be quite a problem. So, you know, I think we mustn't get this out of proportion. Clearly there are solutions to these questions and furthermore the solutions need to be chosen by humanity of the future when these, te- when the, when these problems arise, if they do arise. So if we ask about the question of overpopulation, we have to remember that the demographic changes that would occur as a result of eliminating ageing, even if there were no changes in the birth rate, which of course is an unrealistic scenario because birth rates are falling all the time, um, that, that, that change will be slow, very slow, and it will happen in the context of simultaneous, much more rapid changes in other technologies. So the development of um, alternative um, energy sources, for example, that lower our um, environmental footprint in that way, or also, um, you know, the fact that one thing that's rather important is the fact that it's not just how many children your average woman has in their life; it's actually how old they are when they have them, and if people know that they can live a very long time and have children at any age, then they may decide to postpone having their first child until they're 70 or 170 or whatever. I know I would. Okay, thanks very much, Aubrey. My pleasure. So, guys, uh, what do you make of all this? Uh, I keep thinking that this subject would be a really good science fiction movie because there's so many issues that it raises. Uh, Marie, you and I were both uh, at the lecture in the Science Gallery. Um, What did you make of Aubrey de Grey? Okay, it, it was really, really interesting, and it it was good. there was good pure science, theoretical science underlying everything he said. But I thought he was trying to be very controversial. Instead of just saying we could live until 150 or 200, he was like, you know what? Why not? Let's just go all the way to a thousand. Yeah, a thousand. Or whenever you get bored of living and you just want to die, I just thought <laughs> it was a little bit over the top. I can't really conceive of a human body lasting for a thousand years. So I thought he was mm. just trying to get conversation going. But like the, the whole idea of living for twice as long is quite interesting and sounds a little bit more realistic. Yeah, it did, it did yeah. seem quite realistic. Um, in terms of the thousand years, he was using a, an analogy that I'm not sure if it quite worked. He was talking about uh, how people maintain classic cars yeah. and how much work can be put into them. And if they are maintained, they can run for years and years and years. And he was saying cars were built to last, or, or at least they were in the old yeah. days. And he said he reckons the human body is also built to last. Um, his theory was he was saying that the, at the point of intervention with these anti-aging therapies would be after damage has accumulated in the body, but before disease has set in. So yeah. it makes sense when you think about it, I suppose. He was like, well, we're not going to try and make your body reverse aging as such. What we're going to do is get in there and clean out all the junk that accumulates in the cells mm. or when the cells start making bad copies of themselves, which is what aging is, I suppose. The, yeah, know, the bad yeah. copies keep being made until the body breaks down and dies. He's going to get in there and take away those bad cells. Well, not him. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it will be. Maybe it will be like Nano Aubrey because he hasn't really said how he's going to do this. But yeah, he's going to get in there and take out those bad cells one at a time yeah, he, to stop all of that aging, he as he calls it, disease, of, the disease of aging. He had a list of seven deadly things that he referred to, and then he, he yeah. did list types of therapies mm. um, that could be used to reverse them. Uh, so Lenny, uh, would you like to live for a thousand years? Um, absolutely, yeah. I think, um, 
you know, um, some people might say that he's trying to play God or something like that and criticize him based on, on that. But I mean, I think anyone who says that, they wouldn't be tempted by the idea, presuming you can maintain a reasonable quality of life. Anyone who says, you know, no is probably lying because, I mean, surely our one of our most basic evolutionary instincts is to survive. And, you know, the idea of being able to survive forever surely has to appeal to our, our very basic biology. But I can't um, help thinking of the practicalities like my pension and when would I retire? <laughs> Hmm. And, you know, can I, if I can afford to live until a thousand and my family or friends can't, it's going to be quite boring and upsetting maybe as well. <laughs> There's yeah. so many different issues. The The biggest being the ethical issue. Should science be allowed to extend the human life for a thousand years, given that there's already going to be a pop, well, there's going to be an estimated population explosion in the next hundred years or so? Well, it seems quite irresponsible question, of the yeah. human race to just basically infest the planet like a parasite. <laughs> well, there's, there's a couple of things there. One is that we've already extended human life. I mean, I think he said mm. that, or I think the guy who introduced him said that in the last 40 years, we've extended life uh, in Ireland by 10 years. So, That's I true, mean, yeah. Aubrey de Grey would say that he works on health and not ageing. And, mm. you know, everybody wants to maintain health. Um, I think his view is that it's not up to us to decide if future generations should die, that we should be doing our best to make yeah. sure that people... He said it was quite selfish if we decided not to let that go ahead. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it is quite selfish not to think of the implications of letting it go ahead. But I, well, I, I think he should keep on with his research, but how it should be applied, it's just, it's very tricky. Yeah, I mean, he did say that... Uh, we won't have uh, a 1,000-year-old person for at least another 900 years. So by then, uh, he reckons that we will have had a bit of time to figure out how this is going to work. Um, mm. He was saying there may be, you know, things like alternative energy sources and True. that, you know... We'll and Stephen Hawking said that we should be looking for other planets to populate as well. So maybe in 900... No, seriously, the, like you have to take these um, things into account. Maybe we can live off planet in 900 years. Therefore, a thousand year old body might not seem like such a bizarre idea. Mm-hmm. Too much Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> <laughs> there was an interesting um, a study. This reminded me of a study that was published in, um, published in Nature last year, the journal Nature, um, about um, attempts to reverse aging in mice. So basically there's an enzyme called telomerase, and telomerase, this maintains the protective uh, caps at the end of chromosomes, which are called telomeres. Um, And as we age, um, low levels of telomerase in our body are associated with aging. I mean, as um, telomerase stops maintaining these telomeres, these protective caps on our chromosomes, um, this contributes to um, the generation of tissue and to bodily functions slowly starting to decline. So um, what these scientists in Harvard did was they created mice with a telomerase switch that could switch on or off the production of telomerase in the mice. So by switching telomerase production off, um, they caused the mice uh, to age early. Um, But then when they switched it back on, they found that it was associated with quite a dramatic reversal um, in many forms of aging in the mice. Um, So there was reversals in things like brain disease and infertility. Um, so quite a quite a big uh, discovery, um, and the scientists are stressing that you know this is still a long way off being hu- used for mm. human application. But what one potential use they do see is in using um, this kind of um, technology, I suppose if you call it that, to treat um, genetic diseases that have a component of premature aging, um, and tel- telomerase plays a role in some uh, of those kind of genetic syndromes that cause um, extremely premature aging. Um, 
And one really important uh, aspect of the research was that the animals showed no signs of cancer. And this was a big worry because um, cancer cells are known for being able to turn on telomerase um, and just keep it running to the point that they can essentially be almost immortal. Um, But these animals showed no sign of of cancer. If we did push the body until it was a thousand years old, there's this scientific theory that the body's only good, the the mammalian body's only good for one billion heart, one billion, yeah, one billion heartbeats. So maybe... Um, even we can't even get that far even with a perfectly good body maybe it's not possible that it can just stay intact for that long I don't know like those classic cars maybe there's just a time where you just have to stop revving it up and just leave it there <laughs> okay yeah thanks for that guys and uh, if anybody's listening to this in a thousand years time you may be actually able to ask Aubrey de Grey uh, what's going on because he's getting his head cryogenically frozen so uh, if anybody's listening in the future you may want to defrost Aubrey de Grey's head <laughs> and see if he has any answers thanks guys In our Culture Corner today, we're looking at botany on TV. Uh, Lenny and I both watched the first episode of the new BBC4 three-part series, Botany, A Blooming History, which is uh, on Tuesday nights. Uh, Lenny, um, just tell us a little bit about what this programme was about, first of all. Well, this was a programme that was sort of about the history of botany. Um, Now, that probably doesn't sound very exciting, um, but um, actually, it, it, it was more, I suppose, about um, some of the people um, and the scientists that were involved in making early breakthroughs in um, botanical science and in sort of, I suppose, coming up with the ways that we use now today to classify plants and how we know plants are related. And um, it wasn't, say, like David Attenborough's um, the, se- the, the Private Life of Plants, which is sort of a classic um botany documentary you know which is full of you know beautiful photography of plants and sort of um venus fly traps in action catching flies and great shots of you know you know pollen bursting into the air and stuff it wasn't really that mm. kind of show it was more about um the characters of botanical history more than the plants yeah. themselves almost there was actually a kind of a disappointing lack of of flowers wasn't there i, I was waiting for a kind of a wow factor to go oh my god look at those exotic plants it's amazing but uh, it was very dis- quite disappointing you were disappointed i, I was quite taken by some of the characters that were described in it um i mean i didn't i you know i i knew about carl linnaeus the uh, swedish scientist from the 18th century from uh, because of he came up with this the binomial system of uh, animal classification that we use you know um two names to describe an animal so humans are homo sapiens for example um linnaeus developed that first on on plants, on plants. Um, yeah. so i knew about linnaean classification as it's called but didn't know that he was such a character i mean it turns out that he came up with this um, sexual classification of plants where he divided plants into different groups based on their, their, their reproductive structures. Um, and he came up with this when he was quite young, when he was in his 20s, and decided he had made such a big breakthrough that he kind of set sail uh, for England by himself um, to kind of convince the scientific establishment of the world that he had made a huge breakthrough. Um, and it, he was a while over there, wasn't he? Um, kind of trying to convince people before he. he uh, I think. Yeah, he he sent on advance copies of this uh, book that he had put together and sent them to uh, to London and I think to the Royal Society. But then when he arrived, he got a, a terrible reception. Yeah, it seems that he kind of used quite racy and um, racy language to describe the sex life of plants, and this sort of seemed to offend the um, scientific establishment at the time, you know. Um, 
as, uh, one unfortunate thing was that the show didn't actually give us an example of any of the racy language she used. I know, I was used. very disappointed that, that apparently uh, this uh, language that he had used was described as loathsome harlotry. Uh, and I mean, the show was broadcast after 9pm, so, you know, I wouldn't mind a little bit of loathsome harlotry on a Tuesday night. Um, yeah, I thought, it, again, just... Um, Slightly, I thought it was a, kind of a missed opportunity as a way to kind of um, get people interested in and, and bring them into it. Possibly, it did lull a bit, and it did it didn't necessarily hold your attention. I found when I was watching it that I could kind of almost close my eyes and just listen to it because it wasn't very visual. Um, you know, like mm. it was just kind of showing shots of the presenter. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. It was uh, Timothy Walker, the yeah. director of the University of Oxford's Botanic Garden. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in him as a presenter as well. He, I felt his personality was not that strong and um, he didn't really have the look for it either. I mean, he, he looked... No Brian Cox, eh? <laughs> he wasn't. I mean, he looked a bit like a less attractive Harry Hill. He had um, glasses and a bald head and terrible teeth, like terrible teeth for television. Um, at the beginning, you see him uh, just kind of lurking among these plants and he keeps peeping out and it just looks kind of sinister. Creepy. Yeah, a little, bit, a little bit creepy. I want to watch it now. It's really strange. Um, I thought one of the most interesting sort of uh, stories was um, Linnaeus's rivalry with um, Philip Miller, um, who mm. was um, in charge of the Chelsea Physic Garden, I believe, like That's this right, botanical yeah. garden in, in yeah. London. A, a um, physic garden is a garden where they grow uh, herbs that can be used for medicinal purposes. Okay. Um, and I mean, um, Miller, he rejected Linnaeus's um, sort of sexual classification system. Um, and uh, in fact, um, the, the sexual classification system turned out to be wrong um, in the end, mostly. It's, it's, the, it's the binomial system of naming that Linnaeus is most remembered for. Um, rather than um, the classification. Um, because apparently, it, but you know, pre-Linnaeus, plants had these huge, cumbersome Latin names where there was like six or seven different Latin, Latin yeah, words. Yeah, it, it could take 30 seconds to say the name of a, a plant, plant yeah. and plants in different countries. A rose the by same any plant. other name that's really long and complicated and boring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, yeah, the, the na- he, he shortened those names. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um one of the other sort of things that I thought was most interesting was um, the story of Thomas Fairchild, um, uh, another sort of botanist who created um, what I think was the first intentionally created or lab-created hybrid plant um, when he um, bred two different species of plant. And he thought that he had produced a brand new species um, of plant and was so sort of horrified by the, the idea of this because, you know, the sort of... Um, I suppose the accepted knowledge at the time was that um, all species were, were created by God and were sort of, you know, um, you know, distinct entities in themselves. That he he was so horrified at having cre- created a new species that he he immediately went to a, to a church and, and gave a, gave a donation right, and didn't yeah. reveal his discovery for years. Four years he he kept it <laughs> secret that he had uh, bred uh, a new a new type of plant which turns out to be a hybrid and was sort of like a the, I suppose in the animal kingdom like a mule when it's two different species it's it, you know um, mating um, and giving birth to offspring the um, the hybrid is, is usually infertile and can't um, have subsequent offspring that's right they were calling it Fairchild's mule and uh, they couldn't figure out why this uh, new hybrid was infertile and it took then it was, I think it was like over 100 years later, 150 really? years later, I think, uh, when Darwin came along and actually uh, published his Origin of Species and, you know, defined 
properly what a species was that then it became clear as to why uh, it couldn't that that plant couldn't reproduce um there was a kind of a tantalizing bit at the end of the show wasn't there um where they were talking about um, the use of uh, plant p- compounds derived from, was it certain species of sage, I think? Um, uh, the, I got that the wrong. The yew tree, I the think. The yew tree um, to treat malaria. Yeah. Uh, no, I think the yew tree was u- being used to treat breast cancer okay. at the moment. But uh, this was another type of uh, uh, a plant. It was from Ghana. I, I'm not, I didn't quite catch the name of it, but it, it was. they were looking for anti-malarial uh, components from those plants. Yeah, that that was a kind of strange transition that the show made at the end where they, you know, from talking about the history of botany, then they went into a modern lab and we saw scientists actually taking plants and searching, using um, kind of uh, searching for like molecular data. Do you think they were afraid they they wouldn't have a relevant enough show without that? Like, why would they segue from the past right into that's kind of what we were wondering because it was really tacked on at the end and it was it was it's maybe maybe the next episode we'll we'll go more into looking at Mm. kind of those kind of uses for plants the next episode is called photosynthesis so i wouldn't hold your breath for that visual or else it'll be quite boring (laughs) (laughs) that that bald guy describing (laughs) (laughs) just an hour of the photosynthesis (laughs) equation on the screen Um, yeah, it was bizarre because that uh, part at the end where, where you, they were showing like how plants and uh, flowers can actually ha- have a, a real use in medicine was the, the most interesting part for me. And I would have preferred to see that at the beginning and then go, OK, I understand why plants are really important. They're not just pretty to look at, you know, they're, they're being used now, like in, in modern uh, medicines. For more information on the botany programme and the BBC's other science content, you can go to the BBC website. It's bbc.co.uk forward slash programmes. Now we just have time for some events uh, from Arlene. It's the last chance to catch Human Plus in the Science Gallery. The exhibition runs until the 24th of June. It explores human augmentation and new strategies for survival. The next exhibition will open on the 15th of July. Log on to sciencegallery.com for more details. On Saturday, June 25th, there will be a pond dipping event in the Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. Suitable for 8 to 10 year olds, they will explore the pond and identify various bugs and insects. The event is free, but booking is essential. Call the Visitor Centre on 01 857 0909. On Thursday, 23rd of June, Conor Ryan of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group will present a talk on humpback whales at the National Aquarium in Salt Hill in Galway. Visit nationalaquarium.ie to book your place. As you might know, next year Dublin is the European City of Science and will host the Euroscience Open Forum Conference in July 2012. The calls for submissions for the conference and also for scientific events around Dublin are now open. Both calls will close on June 30th. Visit dublinscience2012.ie for more information. On Friday, July 1st, the Blackrock Castle Observatory will be celebrating 30 years of the Space Shuttle as part of their first Friday series. There will be hands-on activities from 6 to 8pm, followed by a talk about the shuttle. Visit bco.ie for more details. Thanks for that, Arlene. 
And that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks to all our guests and thanks to you, listener. And our special thanks to Near FM and producer Gavin Byrne. Don't forget you can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, on Twitter under at cybernia, on facebook.com forward slash cybernia, or email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Goodbye.